Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another live episode of That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. And as usual, sitting across the desk from me in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. We really appreciate you listening. We appreciate you interacting with us. I'm going to go ahead and thank you in advance for interacting with us. And we have, Pastor, before we get to our topic, continuing our topic of Bible prophecy, we have some questions that have come in from a listener in Antigua. And the first one says, Dr. Murphy, do you think El, the Holy One of Israel, can bring a man to a high estate so that his appearance would not destroy them? And he lists several passages in Genesis, Genesis 17, 1, 18, 3, 18, 22, so on and so forth. These men saw the possessor of heaven and earth and live. That's truth. Yeah, I, I've been trying to analyze the thinking behind the questions, and uh, I'm having some difficulty getting into the mind of the person who's asking these questions. But it seems to me that um, in this particular aspect of it, um, somehow... Uh, this person somehow believed that a human being would be able to see God. Uh, we explained in a previous broadcast, I think it's last last uh, Tuesday, that uh, the Bible tells us no man can see God in his essence and live because God is light and he's unapproachable. But there are times in the scripture when God uh, assumes what is called a theophany. He takes on the form either of an angel or of a man and he comes down and he reveals himself to humankind, and that's what we have in the book of Genesis. Um, the, the persons that saw him there did not see him in his essence, in, uh, in his, f- his essential form, his light. Uh, they saw him in a manifestation, a physical manifestation. Uh, the other question is, that, do I think that um, El, or God, um, can get a person to the point where that person can see God. I think the Bible makes it very clear that there's a coming a day when humanity, man who put their faith and trust in Christ at the time of the rapture will be changed and be transformed and we will not have the same sinful body that we have. We have a, a renewed body, complete uh, transformed body, uh, immortal body and we're told that in that form we will see Him. So um, in that sense, in the biblical sense, yes, um, we are coming to the point where we will have uh, God dwelling in our midst. We see that in the book of Revelation. And he uh, is, we will not need, the, the Bible says we will not need the sun, we will not need the moon, because God will be the light of the city. But in our present form as sinful human beings, until we are transformed 
at the rapture, uh, there's no possibility of us being able to see God uh, in his essential nature. So I hope that helps to answer the question. What's the other question? Um, here's another one. Dr. Murphy, do the commands of El, the Holy One of Israel, to be followed at all in these times? Well, the, the L that the person is talking about, I hope he understands who this L is, because um, whether this person understands it or not, the word L um, comes from the Hebrew word, which means the strong one. That's what the word El means. And he's presented as the creator in the beginning, uh, Elohim, which is a plural there, by the way. Uh, so it's referring to God as creator. But the L of um, Genesis chapter 1 is identified as Jehovah in chapter 2, verse 4. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, uh, if I might read that for the person if they're listening, um, this is what, how it reads in Genesis 2, verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, the word their Lord is the word Jehovah. It's the word uh, that we would say Yahweh. It's the word that in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses said, Who do I say sent me? He said, I am that I am. Uh, that particular word um, that is used there, um, that uh, Hebrew word has to be, has the basic meaning. It comes from a word called heya, which means to be or to become. And when it says that he is Jehovah, he is the self-existent one. He's the one that the I am. Not the one that was, not the one that is or will be, but the one who actually uh, is, in, in essence, he is the self-existent one. He is the one uh, that is the I am. And by the way, this is the most common word for God in the Old Testament. The word Jehovah or the word Lord, if you go to the King James Version, it always has capital L-O-R-D. Anytime you see that, that's the word Jehovah. It's mentioned 6,823 times in the Old Testament. The word L that he's talking about is mentioned 2,500 times in the Old Testament. But L and Jehovah are the same because in, in chapter 2 verse 4 it says when the Lord God made and the word Lord is Jehovah when Jehovah El made uh, the earth and the, and the world so I hope this person is not confusing words and thinking that El is different from Jehovah uh, because they're not aware of uh, the Hebrew language or not aware how it's translated in the English in the English Bible. They are the same persons. It's just that God reveals himself and about himself in his different names. And every time he reveals himself by a different name, it has to do with something about his character. Uh, for example, Jehovah Shalom um, is the word, the Lord is my peace. Right, uh, Jehovah um, El Shaddai uh, is that He is the Almighty. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, He is the Provider. Jehovah uh, El Roy means that He sees, uh, and every time that He reveals Himself in a different different name, it is some circumstance that that name is appropriate to meet some particular need in that human circumstance. So it's, a, it's, a, it's God's method of self-revelation. He's revealing himself through his names. Uh, so that's why you've got a variety of names uh, in, in the scriptures, but each one of those names are referring to the same person, just emphasizing some aspect of his character or his attributes. Which one of those names should we refer to God as in the year 2019 and we're getting ready to go into 2020? Well, uh, you know, f for example, people make a big issue about the word Jehovah and Yahweh. 
the truth of the matter is that the Hebrew language has no cons- uh, no, no vowels. So um, when you go into the Hebrew language, it's only having consonants, and you can put in vowels in the, that area. So it can be it, the word Jehovah can be uh, Jehovah, uh, or you can put another vowel in there. Um, the important thing is that in using these particular terms that we uh, have in our minds how we conceptualize what the Bible reveals him to be. Uh, there's nothing wrong in calling him Jehovah. There's nothing wrong in calling him God. They're all the same same particular words. Um, and uh, we know that uh, in the self-revelation, we later, later discovered that he is a plurality. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But this is something revealed not in the Old Testament. It's hinted in the Old Testament, but not fully revealed until we come to the New Testament. We're hinted in the, in the Old Testament because the word Elohim, for example, in the beginning, God, as a plural. Really, in truth, in fact, um, they call it a plural majesty, but it is a hint there that there's a plurality within the Godhead. But even though it's a plural uh, noun, it's a singular verb, it's like the word family. Uh, you don't say family are, family is. Be, yeah. But within that family, there's more than one. That's it. And when he said, let us make man in our own image. No, that cannot be the angels because man is not made in the image of angels. So um, there are hints of it in the Old Testament that there's a plurality within the Godhead. And it's interesting, by the way, that when um, it's not just holy, holy, ho- it's always holy, 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 three times, it's thrice uh, God. So uh, it's hinted in the Old Testament, then later on we, we, we discover that um, there's a spirit, God the Spirit, and we discover that it's God the Son. But it's progressive revelation until we come to the fullness in the New Testament where we discover that there is uh, a triune God. Uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not something that is d- easy for us to understand. This is something that's revealed. So whether our minds can comprehend it or not, it is what is revealed in Scripture that we are asked to submit to. There are a lot of things that I don't understand and you don't understand about in life, but it doesn't stop me from enjoying the benefits of electricity. Anybody can explain that to me? Uh, I've, I've read books and books and books, and I still don't understand why there's electricity. But it doesn't stop me from turning on the switch. And there's a lot of things in the Bible that we will never comprehend, but these things are revealed, and we just accept them by faith, and in eternity to be made clear to our views. Now, are there things that you and I can do in order to become enlightened? Uh, I know some people would use different, whether it be drugs or whatever, to be able to get more, understand more mysteries from Scripture? Is that legitimate? The, the, the Bible tells us very clearly that what we need to do is to study the Word, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The psalmist always says that he meditate on the Word. Read Psalm chapter 19. The whole chapter is about the Word of God and the effect the Word of God has on a person's life. What we are supposed to do is to study the Word, read the Word, meditate on the Word, uh, seek the, the Holy Spirit to guide us because He's the teacher. But not only that, uh, remember that the Christianity is over 2,000 years, and you have a, a body of, of, of men that God has called uh, in every generation, and that body of men have left a tremendous amount of material in terms of their commentaries, in terms of their writings, and uh, we need to benefit 
uh, from their read their writings and their literature. Uh, the, the thing that concerns me it's interesting you should mention. I think it concerns me about this gentleman that sent in this um, this thing about t- talking about L, and I'm a little bit concerned that um, I am not too sure if he's trying to create um, making L something a unique name like the Jehovah's Witness take the word Jehovah and there's no other name but the word Jehovah. I mean that yeah. is crazy because Jehovah is the same as L. But uh, he said in the, in uh, the thing they sent in to us, he said. Um, uh, good morning, good day. I am studying by myself with the supervision of the Holy Spirit, like it instructs me. Um, it is strange because I have to deal with unholy spirits, and those I, I pray them off. That bothers me that he is seen to be that he's a a, a, um, a recluse uh, who has become a lone ranger, and he's trying to understand Scripture uh, by himself. And as he says, he's depending completely on the Holy Spirit. Now, there's not, not there's, there, there's nothing wrong in, in in that, but there is a danger of not trying to back up what you think the Spirit is teaching you with what other uh, men of God have said in the past. I, for example, would not embrace a doctrine that is unique to, to my generation, unique to my time. Uh, my first question would be, why has God not revealed that to men who are far more spiritual than I was, and far more godly than I am? What is there that God would reveal to me that he hasn't revealed to these men in the past? So I'm always checked by the past uh, teaching, the past doctrine that God is, because God has been preserving his truth. It's in his word, but he's also preserved his truth uh, in using men of God all over the ages. And I, I you know, men, men like um, 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 Lloyd-Jones, men like um, Spurgeon, men like Moody, men like Finney, uh, men like Jonathan Edwards, uh, it would be very difficult for a person to just ignore uh, those men and what they taught because these were men that were used mightily of God. The Wesleys, for example, uh, John and Charles Wesley. So I think that the danger is of getting alone by yourself, believing that, well, I don't want to listen to what man has to say. I just let the Holy Spirit teach me. But we need to remember that there's another spirit that's out there to deceive. And if you read the book of uh, Timothy, it says that men shall give heed to seducing spirits in these last days. So we've got to be careful it's not seducing spirits that's instructing us as opposed to the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways we can check that is by looking at the body of truth that God has preserved in his word, but also in the writings and the teachings of these great men of God in the past. Uh, And the other thing that concerns me here is that um, I'm having to deal with unholy spirits. I'm not too sure what that means. Uh, Is this person being bombarded by some spirit uh, that is trying to get into his mind? And again, if that is happening, why is that happening? Uh, You know, uh, is this person... Uh, employing different means to try to find out uh, um, are, are they using a drug are they using a you know because the, the American Indians for example use something called peyote which is a uh, uh, um, a drug from the cactus and it's supposed to give them a high the Rastas here in Antigua and in the Caribbean they use uh, marijuana and marijuana is supposed to give them a higher state of consciousness that's a myth complete myth we don't need the assistance of something artificial like a drug to help us to understand scripture we depend on the Holy Spirit, we depend on the Word of God, we depend on the body of Christ and the men of God that God has used in the past. Uh, we do not need a, a drug to help us to understand. So the question would be, why uh, these great men of God in the past didn't need a drug? Why did they need marijuana? Why did they need uh, peyote? Why, 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 why then do we think that we need it? I think it's a delusion, and I think that... Uh, 
um, we are being misled and we got to understand that in these last days the final phase of humanity the eternal generation the Bible says the key concept that will be prevalent in that time is deception read Matthew chapter 24 and you see the keys repeating men will be deceived and deceived and deceived Paul says the same thing in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 so we got to be very very careful about the possibility of dece- being deceived and being misled uh, by an imagined idea that the Holy Spirit is doing the teaching. Did I connect the dots correctly in what you were implying or saying that if a person is using a drug in order to get a higher state of consciousness that they could be opening doors for evil spirits? I have no doubt about that. I think the problem today that I don't think even the government of this country really understands the implications of making marijuana legal and allowing every home to have four plants. I don't think they really understand what they're doing. Now what puzzles me is that the men in the in the government who are professed believers and I don't understand how these men could read the Bible understand the Bible and not understand the danger of not being in control of your mind opening the door of your mind and uh, not having your mind read, read Corinthians uh, Paul made it very very clear he would pray with his understanding uh, he would pray with his mind the idea of praying in tongues for example Paul said I'd rather pray in three words or ten words and understand what I'm saying than pray in tongues I don't understand and Paul was very much aware but it's interesting by the way when he starts off the, the, the topic on, on um, the, the tongues movement he said no man calleth Jesus a curse by the Holy Spirit and, and the reason for that is by the way is that the the word uh, Maranatha and anathema are very much alike and you can be thinking speaking in tongues saying anathema people think you're saying Maranatha which means the Lord comes the other one means God curse you mm-hmm. so that's why Paul is saying you're saying words so you've got to be very very careful if you hear a man using a word and uh, it's, it's out of bounds uh, the Spirit of God has not led that person to make that utterance so he's very very concerned that we in control of our minds. Pastor, one other question from this individual, and thank you very much to the individual for sending in these questions. Uh, Dr. Murphy, could you identify who is speaking in Genesis 26, 5? And I'll read that verse. Go ahead. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And the second part of that question is, who appeared to whom in 26.16. 26.16 says, And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. The, the answer to that question is quite simple. If you look in chapter 26, same chapter, and look at verse number 2, you see who appeared. And who appeared? The Lord. The Lord. And who, notice that they're saying what? All caps. Uh, right. And that word, every time it's in all caps, what's the word? Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh, right? Uh, so this is the Jehovah God that appeared uh, to Isaac. And he warns Isaac, don't make the mistake uh, that your dad made. Your dad made the mistake of going down to Egypt. Don't go down into Egypt. And uh, you'll find that um, he goes down there, etc., uh, etc. Et and then in going down to Egypt, he makes the same mistake his dad does. He, uh, his father that he tells a lie. And his wife is taken and that's what you have here in this uh, particular passage. Uh, look at verse um, 5. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. And how sayest thou she is thy sister, my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, Lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto me? One of the people might lightly have lain, light laid with her, and uh, thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man 
or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sold in the land and received the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. Uh, for he had possessed all flocks and possessions of, of herds and, and great store of, of uh, servants, and the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servant had dug in the days of uh, Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them up and filled them. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Clearly who is speaking there is Abimelech telling Isaac, Listen, we recognize that your God is blessing you. Uh, you you lied to us, and we almost took your wife. But uh, we have been able to see that when you when you when you plant and you plow, you're getting uh, all these results. So you just move away from us. You're too prosperous. Remember that they're trying to get him to leave because they're filling up the wells. Abraham had dealt some wells, and now they're filling up the wells. You know, water is it's prime uh, prime importance back in those days. It's, it's a agrarian society, and so God is blessing, and they're trying to get. So in, in, in the passage that is there, it is. Um, Abimelech in verse 16 said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. He's saying to Isaac, You need to move on because uh, you're much more successful. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Girah. So to answer the question in verse uh, 16, uh, it's Abimelech uh, asking Isaac to leave the presence. But the one that appeared uh, in this passage is the Lord, L-O-R-D, which is the word Jehovah. And uh, if you read Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you'll find that Jehovah and El are the same one. El, Jehovah, created the heaven and the earth, chapter 2 and verse 4. So I'm not too sure what is the, the issue here, in this, in this, uh, the question here. I'm trying to decipher what the person was thinking. And one final uh, question to build on that. Uh, we, you answered who appeared to whom uh-huh. in Genesis twenty six sixteen. What was said about that same person? And can you say that person is in a higher state? That seems to be a phrase that this person is uh, yeah, focused I mean, that, on. Yeah, that's why I'm led to believe that perhaps a person who's writing this here, and the other word that he keeps using, the word El mean highest. The word El doesn't mean highest. In the Hebrew language, it means, uh, it means the strong one. That's what it means. It doesn't mean highest. So I don't know where the person get that particular uh, meaning from. He can take any lexicon. Uh, Hebrew lexicon, he can take any Bible dictionary, or he can take any commentary, and he will see that the word El does not mean highest. The word El means a strong one. So I suspect this is a person who might have uh, um, Rastafarian leanings. That's my interpretation of what, what, it, what it, and then the, what, find the idea of the person made uh, higher, that's the word you're using? Uh, uh, what he said? Yes. Let me find the page here. Uh, what is said about that per- same person, and can you say that person is in a higher state? Well, I don't think the person in a higher state. The person has been blessed by God. Isaac is being blessed by God. He promised, as, as uh, it was promised to Abraham that the Lord would bless uh, Abraham and bless his seed, and of course he would bless the world to uh, the Jew as well. And that's when the Messiah came. But um, uh, not in a higher state. He's just in a higher place of blessing. God is blessing him, and he's being successful. Uh, and uh, the Philistines become jealous and envious of the fact that he seemed to be so productive in terms of the results of his agrarian skills. And as a result, uh, they're saying to him, it's about time you move on from us, you're too successful in most. So it has nothing to do with a higher consciousness or a higher uh, um, level in terms of thinking. It has to do with a higher level of blessing, that God is blessing him in a very material way here in this chapter. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are glad that you are. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 
92.3 FM, and you can invite family and friends to listen anywhere in the world at www.radiolighthouse.org. Or if you'd like to see what's going on behind the scenes, you can go to our Facebook Live page, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Go to the click on the Facebook Live video feed and you can comment your question. Thank you for joining us, no matter which one of those mediums you are joining us. Yeah, I want to say another word here quickly, uh, Nathan. Uh, you'll also find in the King James Version the word Lord with a capital L and all small letters. Whenever that word is found in the King James Version, it's the word Adonai which means master. The whole idea is that he is the sovereign control of the universe. The idea is he, he's the chief CEO, as it were. So anytime you see this uh, capital L in small letters, it's the word Adonai. Anytime you see Lord, all capitals, it's the word Jehovah. And of course, uh, anytime you see the word God, it's the word L uh, that is used. But all three refer to the same persons, just emphasizing something. Uh, El, as I said, is a strong one that created the entire universe. Uh, Adonai is the one that rules and controls. And of course, Jehovah is the one that enters into covenant relationships. Different emphasis, but it's part of God's self-revelation in his names. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in those questions. We appreciate your questions. We appreciate the questions that no matter who you are or where you're listening, what you might have to ask, uh, Pastor is here to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. Again, the phone number to be put live on the air is one 462 7420 and the phone line is available, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 782 Now, Pastor, Bible prophecy. Uh, we have spent several weeks, I believe this might be our sixth week now, that we've been discussing Bible prophecy. And last week, at the end of the episode, you begin to discuss the major views or schools of thought on end-time prophecy. Can you remind us of those and then give a brief rehash of what was said about each of those views of the millennium? Yeah, we, we, uh, we pretty much uh, talked about the three major schools of Bible prophecy. And we mentioned those as what is called the amillennial view, the uh, postmillennial view, and the premillennial view. Uh, the words there, the key word is the word millennium, which has to do with a thousand. Uh, you'll find in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that Christ will rule for a thousand years. Uh, several times in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, you'll find that, that mentioned that he'll rule for a thousand years. The question would is, um, is this a real thousand years or not? The amillennials are those that say it's not a real thousand years. The thousand years are symbolic. The postmillennials said that there is going to be a, a thousand years, and uh, Christ is going to come back after a thousand years. And the premillennials uh, said that Christ will return before the, he, be, the, he comes and he starts the millennium. So those are the three major schools of thought uh, in relation to uh, uh, Bible prophecy. Um, I pointed out last time that all of these views um, agree on two things. First of all, they agree that one day uh, uh, they believe that Christ is Lord of Lord and King of King of Kings, and that He rules. The question is: Does He is He going to rule literally here on planet Earth, or is He ruling from the heavens? 
So there's no question that they both consider him to be the sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The, the second thing is, is this millennium that we're talking about, is this a literal millennium kingdom that will be on earth for a thousand years? Or is this some kind of allegorical expression that's used in the Bible, symbolic form that represents not a real thousand years, but symbolic of a, a long period of time? Uh, but they do believe that Christ is going to return at the second coming and he's going to judge the world so there's no question about who he is he's the lord of lords and king of kings and that he's coming back uh, to judge the world and bring about the eternal kingdom they all agree on those two things um, and the, the problem is uh, the, the dispute is about uh, is this a literal reign or not and the second question is, when does he return? When does this period start? Does it start before he comes back? Does it start after he comes back? So that's where we differ on, on these kind of issues. And um, this is where then, if you have a different view on the millennium, it will affect your view of Bible prophecy. For example, if you are our millennial or you're post-millennial, you don't believe that there's going to be a rapture. You don't believe that there's any such thing as the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, you you confuse the rapture with the second coming, and you think that they're all the same. So it differs in terms of your understanding of Bible prophecy, especially the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. Uh, and that is why when it, when it comes to the character of the future prophecy and it comes to the chronology of future prophecy. This is where there's a difference of opinion between these different types of schools. Uh, and that is why a person can be a pre-mill, a post-mill, or a mill and still be a Christian. It's not a question that he questions that Jesus, who Jesus is or that he's coming back. It's just it, the whole question we're concerned about his reign. Is this a present reign or is it a future reign? And it depends on your system of interpretation. That's why we, when we started Bible prophecy, we made it very clear that you've got two systems of, of interpretation called hermeneutics. You either got the allegory method that takes the Bible and don't take it literally and so you make it symbolic or you take it in the grammatical literal way and uh, unless there is figurative language that is there which is you know you got similes you got metaphors uh, you got synecdoches, keys etc if you if you got that you know it's symbolic language but even symbolic language teaches teaches something uh, poetry teaches you something it might teach it in imagery so it still teaches something that's where the the, the problem uh, lies uh, as far as these views are are, are concerned so if you are a person that uh, doesn't take the premillennial view you don't see any need for the tribulation. You don't see any need for the rapture. And then, of course, you don't see any need for Israel either, as far as, as God, God's program is concerned. And there's no real literal Antichrist coming. Okay, so all of that you have to jettison and you have to throw overboard. But when you come to Revelation, you come to Daniel, no, you've got to tear up Daniel. You've got to somehow make that say something it doesn't mean. That's where the problem lies. Now, we, we, uh, we went through those views, uh, the R-mill view and the post-mill view. And as far as the R-mill view is, it means there's no millennium. And what they believe is that Christ is reigning today from heaven, and he's reigning in the hearts of men. So he's reigning, uh, and this thousand years the Bible talks about, it's an indefinite period of time. Uh, but when this indefinite period of, of time of grace that God has given to us, then the second coming comes. So while, right now we're living in the millennium. This is the period that they're talking about, okay? The problem with that is, of course, that Satan is said to be bound for a thousand years. Now, they say that Christ was bound 
at his first coming. Well, if he was bound, he was bound a further long chain because he has a lot of activity going on, right? So uh, it depends on how you interpret the scripture as far as that is concerned. Um, so they believe that uh, Christ is currently reigning and he's coming back to judge the world and bring about the eternal stage. Now, what is interesting, by the way, is that when you look at the the mill position, um, what they believe in terms of the future, they're, they're, they're kind of what you might call the events of the future. They believe there can be a parallel development of good and evil that will continue in this present age until Christ returns. Christ comes back in the second coming. There's a general resurrection. and a general judgment. And after that, we go into eternity. That's their program for the future. So that's the gist of the essence of the uh, mill. Now, the post mill, which means that Christ comes back after the millennium, um, they also believe that this millennial period is between his first and his second coming. But they believe that there's going to be a thousand years where the church is going to dominate the world and convert the world. Now, this was a view that was held, by the way, in the 18th and 19th century. That's the time of the evolution came about. They were very optimistic. You had um, the um, the industrial revolution started. You had the news, new technology and science was on, in, in where. And man was very optimistic at the beginning of the, the 19th century. They just thought that the world was going to be such a great, and then something happened, the two world wars. Yeah. And that shattered that vision of the church being able to convert the world. So the post-mill view now has pretty much been abandoned. But it was the two world wars that destroyed this optimism. Man was going to bring down ut- utopia. Uh, we we're going to have peace on planet Earth, and the League of Nations will solve the problems. And then, bam, it happened. One war after the other. And of course, I don't want to tell you that the 21st century has been the bloodiest period in human history with all the knowledge and advance we've had. That has shattered the optimism. Uh, as far as the the uh, post mill is concerned. Um, they were looking for this golden age, and it, it didn't happen. But their view uh, is pretty much the same as the Amil, that after the period of time, Christ will return to the second coming. Uh, he will come back, he'll judge the world, and he, he would uh, bring about the eternal system. So those are the two main ones that we looked at. We looked at the uh, the Amil, and we looked at the, the, the post-mill. But in both cases, notice that the word thousand is not a little thousand. And the whole idea there basically is that um, Christ is coming back, but they don't have any room for the rapture. They don't have any room for the seven-year tribulation period. They don't have any place for the Antichrist. All of that is you have to give up once you're at mill or post-mill. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is four and a half minutes after 8 p.m. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in or call in. The phone lines are available. If you'd like to be put live on the air, the phone number is one 462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, or maybe it's just a suggested idea for another topic in the future, you can send it to one 268 782 one four five four. Now, Pastor, how does the pre-mill view differ from those other two views? Well, the pre-mill basically takes the Bible literally. It reads Revelation chapter twenty, and it believes that there's going to be a little thousand years, and that that rule will take place uh, when Christ returns, 
and uh, he'll set up his millennial kingdom. And it also believes that this would be an earthly kingdom where Christ will rule the world from Jerusalem. Uh, that's how the, the early church, uh, that's, that's what, what, what is believed. The, the, the truth of the matter is this was the view of the early church, which is shocking. Uh, people like uh, Papias and um, um, uh, Clement of Rome and Barnabas and Ignatius and Polycarp. Remember Polycarp was a disciple of John, John who wrote the book of Revelation. Papias was also a disciple of John, the ba- uh, John who wrote the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that all in their writings, they all believe in a literal millennial rule when Christ would come back. Okay, That is just fascinating. But that was the view of the early church for the first 300 years of Christianity. And then in the 4th century, Augustine came up with the idea that the church would bring about the the millennium on planet Earth, and they will have this progressive advance of humanity because the church will transform the entire world. Augustine came up with that, and the premillennial view suffered from that and was lost in terms of the church was concerned. The, the predominant view now became the, the amillennial view uh, that uh, Augustine st- st- mentioned. Um, but it differs in, in, in many, many ways. Uh, for example, when Christ will reign, it tells you that Christ will reign at the second coming when he comes back and he deals with the tribulation period and he uh, he deals with humanity. Then he sets up his throne, the beast is thrown into the bottomless pit. Uh, the false prophet read Revelation chapter 19 and then after Revelation chapter 19 when the, king, the, the beast uh, who is the Antichrist is destroyed, then uh, Christ sets up his millennial kingdom and binds Satan for a thousand years. So the the kingdom will be inaugurated by Christ at his second coming, after the the uh, the tribulation period and after the Antichrist has been destroyed. Uh, this is also believed to be a literal period of time. Uh, the church will not bring about this kingdom. It is Christ that will bring about this kingdom, and this will only take place after his, his second coming. Um, so this is what is believed uh, in that connection, and is believed this way because of the promises that God made in the Scriptures uh, to Abraham and made to David, and uh, even Christ made uh, to his disciples. We'll talk about that very shortly. But this is based on taking the literal promises in the Bible to come true, and as a result, we hold to this position. Now, the difference between these groups and the um, the premillennial view. This is their. This is the premillennial view of of uh, Bible prophecy. This is the events, the future events. They believe that first of all, there's going to be an increasing religious apostasy, and the moral decay of society. You get that in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, perilous times are going to come. We don't believe the world is going to improve. We don't believe that man will bring out a utopia. And we believe that the world is headed to a major catastrophe. Secondly, they also believe that there will be social and moral decay, which we are seeing all around us. We will return to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and the days of, of Noah. The days of Noah were the times of violence. The days of Sodom and Gomorrah were the time of moral degradation and perversion. And then we believe that after that, there will be the rapture of the church. The church will be taken out, and after the rapture takes place, there will be a seven-year tribulation period where God grafts Israel back into his program, and God judges Israel and, and tries to purge Israel and judges the world. Then that will end with the Armageddon, with all the nations coming against Jerusalem, that the Bible talks about, and then Christ comes back at the second coming to destroy all the enemies of Israel and all his enemies. Then he binds Satan, set up his kingdom for a thousand years, 
And uh, after the thousand years, he's released, and he goes and deceives the nation, and Christ judges, and then there's a great white throne judgment, the new heaven and new earth, and then there's eternity. So if you look at the order of the coming events, the premillennial view is so detailed, and do believe in the tribulation, do believe in a rapture, uh, do believe in a millennial kingdom, uh, do believe that Satan will be bound, uh, and do believe that we're going to reign with Christ on planet Earth as He's promised, and we do believe that eventually the eternal kingdom is coming in. But that differs so much from the other two. That's why it's so important uh, to know exactly what you believe. You're discussing these different views, and a question just came to me. If I have a family member or a friend who I fellowship with, but they don't hold to the same view of end-time prophecy, Pastor, what do you advise? Should I separate from them? It, it depends. I think as a church, um, it, I think that's something you have to to deal with on an individual basis. When I say that, there are a lot of uh, ways in which we differ with each other. There are certain doctrines that divide churches and have been divided churches for centuries. For example, uh, I can think of Calvinism, for example, the tulip, um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, very strongly that every man that is born, God says, you for hell, you for heaven. Hmm. No, you don't have any right to choose. Uh, you know, it's, in other words, there's nothing you can do. Uh, the churches that believe that. Now, there are those that believe that God sovereignly elects. There are those that believe that God selects according to foreknowledge, which is a different thing. Uh, that th- th- those groups are, are with us and would have always been with us. Zwingli and Calvin and Luther differed on these these matters. Um, there are those who believe that a person can be saved and lost. Wesley uh, was one of those people, right? Uh, and again, there was a difference between Wesley and uh, um, um, Whitfield. Yeah. And they separated because one was a, a Calvinist and one was an Armenian. Right? These are, remain with us. Uh, Same thing with Bible prophecy. You've got people who hold to the Armill position. The, the postmill is pretty much dead. Everybody knows that. Everybody's now come to the realization that this church, this world is not going to get any better. The church will never bring in utopia. But it's the Amil position now and the pre-mill. The Amil has no place for Israel. They believe that all the promises God made to, uh, for Israel are now absorbed into the church. The church has replaced, is called replacement theology. The pre-mill believe that's not true. God has not abandoned his people and God has not uh, uh, forsaken his people, Paul tells us in the book of Romans. So God has a place for the nation of Israel, but until the church is raptured, uh, he continues to work through the church. But once the church is raptured, he grafts Israel back into this program. And the tribulation period is about God purifying the nation of Israel, bringing Israel back to faith. And he's dealing with Israel in severity. And of course, he deals with the world as well in that regard. So um, my recommendation would be that um, sometimes you have to agree not to, agree not to disagree. And what I mean by that, if it becomes a contentious matter, let's, we're not going to discuss prophecy when we meet together. You might want to recommend to the person that they read certain books, like Charles Wyrie's book on the premillennial uh, doctrine. It's a, a book I would recommend that the person read it. That person might say to you, but you read uh, this book on the Amil. So I think you can reciprocate. You read his book, you read their book, etc. And then you can discuss scripture together, etc., etc. But I don't think there's a possibility that we will ever uh, bring everybody to think along the same way when it comes to Bible prophecy. And so I would think that uh, in relation to personalities, I wouldn't let that fracture my relationship with somebody. 
if I find that every time we come, we debate this matter and it leads to contention, I would say, let's not deal with this. Let's deal with a thing that we agree on. But meanwhile, if you feel strongly about the matter, I would recommend the person that you, would you read this book and you have a book I can read and then you reciprocate, etc. And then you can meet and discuss. But I would not fracture the fellowship because somebody differed with me. Uh, I got pastor friends right now who are amillennialists and I don't let that be an issue at this point in time. Now, if it becomes a point where if I invite the person to my church and he starts preaching on that, well, then that's to be ended all relationship because he knows my position. I'm not going to go into his church and try to uh, um, uh, go against what he's teaching. Yeah. Uh, so I think we have to sometimes respect certain doctrinal positions because this is not something we're going to solve this side of eternity. Um, you know, I, I keep saying this, uh, Nathan, uh, part of the problem we have within the Baptist circle and within the fundamentalist circle is that we are not readers. We don't know the background of fundamentalism. And you will discover, if anybody would take any book on fundamentalism, uh, you would discover that it came about in the 19th century when there was a shift towards evolution and a shift towards higher criticism where they were saying the Bible is not the Word of God. Men of God who believed the Word of God came together. They were Baptists, they were Episcopalians, they were Lutherans, um, they were Calvinists, they were Arminians. They came together in the interest of defending the Bible, and they came up with what is called the fundamentals. And the fundamentals were basically the virgin birth, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the Lord's return, uh, uh, the vicarious atonement of Christ, uh, faith in Christ and Christ alone. Those were the fundamentals that they, they rallied around in unity, but they differed on different areas, and they didn't allow, they were even Methodists, by the way, that yeah. were part of the fundamentalist movement. So how is that different from the ecumenical movement? Well, the ecumenical movement is, is, is quite different in the sense that a lot of people in the ecumenical movement are evolutionists. They're humanists. Okay. They are not people that believe the Bible. And uh, there are many in, in, in there that believe the Bible, but it's made of a hodgepodge. And then there are many doctrines that are false within the ecumenical movement. For example, how can you believe that a person, that baptism saves somebody? That when you go down in the water that they're saved, the Bible says you're saved by faith. That would be an issue that we would have to contend with. Uh, then the, the other thing, which is a major doctrine for us, is like the this, this save and loss matter. I mean, are you eternally saved or can you be saved and lost? I think that's a, a doctrine that is worth fighting over, right? That doesn't mean I can't have a friend who might differ on that, but when it comes to uh, ecclesiastical uh, I- interaction and exchange of pulpits, etc., et I wouldn't want that kind of confusion to come into our church. So I think you have to personally decide uh, where you draw the line, and uh, that is a personal matter, I think, for a pastor in those regards. But if a person is teaching false doctrine, like, like for example, a lot of these churches, well, already got homosexuals in the pulpit, already got lesbians in the pulpit, already got women in the pulpit. No, we would not associate with people who, who, who hold that's kind of, uh, those kind of positions because we believe that they're totally scripture uh, uh, wrong. And we could show that very clearly from scripture uh, in those matters. So we, there are certain issues that are worth separating over. There are others that uh, uh, we're not too sure if it is really worth the battle and the fight. So that's why we have the differences on these issues. And that goes back to the fundamentals of the faith. And if you're interested in hearing more about the fundamentals of the Christian faith, you can look up That's Truth podcast on Google, and you can search for the episode entitled Fundamentals of the Faith. We did a whole episode just dedicated to that 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.17. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, or broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 11.60 a.m., 92.3 f.m., online at www.radiolighthouse.org, and also online on Facebook Live, if you go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Talking about Bible prophecy, but we're also here to answer your questions. If you have a question, you can call 268-462-7420 to be put live on the air, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Now, Pastor, you've laid out the details of the three views of the millennium. Which one is the best, and can you back it up with Scripture? Well, I think that um, I can back up the the one that I think is the the best understanding of Bible prophecy. Um, And again, remember that substantially it's the hermeneutic that is used to Bible prophecy that settles this whole matter. uh, I believe that the uh, historical grammatical method of interpretation, taking the Bible literally, it is standard approach to Bible prophecy. I do not hold to the allegorical view where um, these uh, things in the Bible are interpreted as symbolic or that uh, the church has replaced Israel. I don't hold to those views. And by the way, this is not a trivial matter. Um, this comes down to the, 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 the whole matter of whether or not the there's going to be a rapture? Is there going to be a tribulation period that is real? Is it going to be a thousand years? I think that is a very serious matter. Um, but I would also like to add to this that, you know, th- these are not ungodly men that affirm these different views. And that's the point I'm making. These are not apostates. These are not liberals. These are not modernists. These are not secularists or humanists that hold these particular views. These are men who sincerely hold different views on, on prophecy for two reasons. A lot has to do with their theological training, where they were trained. A person who is, for example, to reform faith would have been uh, taught in some Calvinistic school, uh, and uh, that that teaching there would be the amillennial view. The other thing, of course, is that um, it depends on your denomination. If you are a, a Lutheran, you will be an Amil person. If you're a Calvinist, you're going to be an Amil person. So if you belong to the Presbyterian, or you belong to the Reform, or the Lutheran, uh, so it, a lot has to do not only with the theological training, but also the church that you belong to, the denomination. That being said, uh, I would like to suggest to you why the pre-mill is the best understanding of Bible prophecy. The first thing I would I would add to this is that uh, the pre-mill position is grounded on the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham and uh, David. And I would even say the promise that Christ made to his uh, disciples. Uh, if you look, uh, Nathan, at uh, Genesis chapter 12, for me, just a moment, 1 to 3, and then Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. Look at the Abrahamic promise uh, that was made to Abraham there in Genesis chapter. Remember that Abraham promise is a unilateral uh, unconditional promise uh, to Abraham. God said, I will do these things for you. Not if you do this. This is an unconditional promise. I will fulfill these. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and then chapter uh, 15, 18, uh, what does it say there in Genesis 12, 1 to 3? Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
And then Genesis 15. Yeah, 18. 15 verse 18 says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now you notice that in the Abrahamic covenant there are three things that are said. Number one, it said that God would personally bless Abraham and that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. Okay. It also said that he would give Abraham many descendants, out of he would come many descendants. And it also said that he would give to Abraham's descendants a certain land. And it tells you from, from the river Nile until the river Euphrates. So there are three promises within there. He's going to be personally blessed. He's going to be blessing to the whole world. Uh, he will have many descendants, and he's going to be given a land. Now, he has fulfilled the promise of blessing Abraham. And he's the promise of giving Abraham many descendants. The, both the Jews and the Arabs came to Abraham, one through Ishmael, one through uh, uh, Isaac. Isaac, right? So he's done that. Um, he's told Abraham that he will bless the world through Abraham. He's done that already. The Messiah came to Abraham. The Word of God uh, has been a blessing to the world. And, of course, the church uh, and its influence on the Western world uh, has been a blessing to the entire world. But then there's another promise that the land is going to be given to Israel, and they will have a land from the River Nile to the river. No, they've never, ever possessed that land. They have possessed part of Palestine, but never the entire part of Palestine. So if God is going to keep, if he kept the first two parts, first three parts, he blessed Abraham, he gave him the, the, the children of the seed, uh, he created him of, of many, many nations, uh, uh, he gave them the land, but they never were able to fully take the extent of the land. And he, he demarcated in first in uh, Genesis fifteen eighteen the boundaries of the land. So that is yet to be fulfilled. Okay, if he kept the first set of promises, he's not going to fall back on his promises. The promise of God are yea and amen. So we do believe that Israel will one day be able to occupy all the land that God promised uh, to Abraham. Uh, the other thing is, <clears throat> if you uh, look at um, the Davidic government in Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve to sixteen. While I'm looking this up, a question that came to my mind uh -huh. is you were talking about that said that that land would be given to Abraham's descendants. Uh, technically, Abraham's descendants do own that land because the Arabs and the Israelites is so you would say that it's the Israelites that are descendants of Isaac that no, will be given the, the you, land? You later on discovered, I didn't go through the all, but we, we did another occasion where you find that the promise to Abraham is handed down to Isaac. Okay. And then it's handed from Isaac, it's handed down to Jacob, right? Thank you for uh, explaining that. Uh, yeah, that needs to be made very clear. Second uh, Samuel. Chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. All right. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son if he committed iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I t took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. 
and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now there's it. I mean, it's very, very clear that the Lord promised uh, David that uh, his descendants would sit on his throne and reign in his kingdom forever. He didn't promise him that it will continue indefinitely and continuously, but he said that there will come a time when the right for the Davidic rule will always be there, and that one will come that will sit on his throne and sit on his throne forever. Now, we know that the Davidic kingdom went into demise when the Babylonians came and destroyed Israel. Uh, but we do know that God promised that one from David's seed will sit on the throne of David forever. What is interesting, by the way, is when you go to uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 32 and 33, you see that that promise is said to be fulfilled in Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33 yeah. says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. So that promise is now because Christ, if you check the book of Matthew, is of the seed of David. That's why in the book of Revelation he's called the root and the branch of David. He's both the root that he's the originator because he's the creator, he's also a branch because he's a natural descendant. But notice there that the, on, on this one will... Uh, God will give to him the throne of David and he'll sit on the throne of David. Now, when was that fulfilled? It was never fulfilled. It is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, and the Bible makes it very, very clear that that's a promise that God made and Christ is going to fulfill that. That's why the millennium tr truth is believed because the millennial kingdom is the earthly kingdom that will be set up by Christ uh, which fulfills the Davidic covenant that was made to David in First Samuel chapter, Second Samuel chapter seven. What is interesting as well, if you look at uh, Jeremiah chapter twenty-three, verse five and six, uh, you will find uh, a similar sentiment expressed there in Jeremiah chapter twenty-three, verse five and six. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 yeah. says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. There's only one person that's referred to in the Bible as a branch and as the Lord, of, that's Christ. And notice that he said, I will raise up in connection with David's kingdom again. So that's a promise that's been made. It's interesting that in Luke chapter 1, the, the, prop, uh, the writer links that prophecy to, to Christ. That has not been fulfilled and that has to be fulfilled. The other thing is, um, if you look at the literal interpretation of the kingdom, that a kingdom is coming, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and see that uh, there is coming a day when the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Acts 1, 6 and 7 says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the time or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. 
Now, if you look at verse number three, he said, to, uh, "He said to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion for many infall- uh, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to what the kingdom." See, he'd been talking about the kingdom, the restoration of the kingdom, and they want to know, Lord, when is you going to restore this kingdom of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen, but it's not your business. You know, only the Father knows that. So here, Christ is actually endorsing the fact that there's going to be a kingdom restored to Israel. And then one other verse that confirms this, by the way, is look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. A promise that Christ made to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I mean, it can't be clearer. There's a promise that the time is coming when you will sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribe of Israel. So if you destroy Israel, there's no Israel. <laughs> it's a myth. Hmm. Christ would not make a promise he can't fulfill. And clearly as God, he is saying to the, to the disciples, you're going to one day sit on 12 thrones, you're going to judge the children of Israel. That takes place during the millennial kingdom. And that's why we believe that when you take the Bible in its literal interpretation and take the promises that were made in the Bible the, and the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant uh, and the Davidic covenant, and now the promise that Christ makes to his disciples, it is very, very clear there's going to be an earthly kingdom where the disciples are going to rule on 12 thrones and they're going to judge a literal Israel. How do you twist that to mean anything else than a literal thing? So I'm curious, the amillennialist, from your understanding, how would they interpret that? Obviously they would say it's an allegory for something, but I'm... Are you aware of how I am not too sure. Well, I am not too sure. What they would probably, I would hazard a guess that what they would say is that, okay, that promise was made, but because Israel failed, that Uh, promise will not be fulfilled. It was conditional. It was conditional, right? But again, when you read the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, there are no conditions laid down. The words forever is there. I'll do it forever. So whether Israel failed or not, uh, and by the way, it's very, very clear that Paul, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul said, has God forsaken his people? He said, no. I am a Jew. 7,000 were saved back in the days of uh, Elijah. And the prophets say that this is what's going to happen. There's coming a day when the Jew is going to be regrafted into God's program. God is not finished with Israel as a nation, but he's now working through the church. And when the church is raptured, then he grafts Israel back into his program. The Amil doesn't see that. Because in their judgment, all the promises made to Israel were forfeited when they apostatized and denied Christ. Now, all those promises belong to the church. So they don't don't see all those kind of things as abandoned now, but the church now have those promises, right? The other thing is, uh, Nathan, is that the second reason is not only the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the promise Christ made him, but also the order of events that you find in the book of Revelation 19 and uh, 20. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in chapter 19 uh, and verse 11 to 19, it, John sees Christ coming back in his second coming to planet Earth. Uh, he describes him as the one who is true and faithful, the one who is the Word of God, the one who is King of King and Lord of Lords. Uh, that's how he's described. He points out in that chapter that when he comes back, he destroys the beast, he binds Satan, and... Uh, the resurrection of the tribulation saints are, are take place, and then Christ begins to reign. So notice the order. He's second coming. Satan is bound. 
the Antichrist is destroyed, the tribulation states are raised, and then you get the millennial kingdom. So when you look at the order in Revelations, it is very, very, very clear that there is a sequence in which Christ is coming back, and that the millennial kingdom will only come, or will only take place after he returns, after he destroyed the beast and the false prophet and the Antichrist. So the logic of, of the book of Revelations 19 and 20 uh, is very, very, very clear. Go ahead. Pastor, uh, we have a caller calling from Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Yeah. I would like to know, um, you know, in la- in those days gone by there, this queen, you have a queen from um, Ethiopia. Uh-huh. The queen of Sheba. Uh-huh. She went to visit the, the King Solomon. Yeah. That you know about that? Yeah, I know about that. But that let me just say this: there's no, there's no saying that she's from sheep from Ethiopia. They said she's from uh, Sheba, and Sheba is supposed to be in Arabia. So the, the question. No, she was an Ethiopian queen. But I'm telling you what the Bible says. Not telling you what you say. You can go into the Bible. And you see that it says that she came from Sheba. Sheba is in Arabia. The interpretation that's to be given by the Ethiopians is that she was from Ethiopia, and in their chronicles they have that recorded. But what I'm saying to you, there is a dispute over that, whether or not that chronology is correct. And that's where the dispute comes in. But every, I mean, if you check any Bible dictionary or check any authentic um, um, encyclopedia, you see that Sheba was in Arabia. Now, whether there was a Sheba in Ethiopia, I don't know. But I'm just saying to you, that is where the dispute comes in. But go ahead, I'm listening to you. What I'm saying now, this man, that was born in Ethiopia, uh-huh. 1930, is it a myth? Who? Did he sit on the, on the throne of David? Well, there's no throne in David in, in, in Ethiopia. The throne of David has always been in Israel. Israel is not Ethiopia. The throne of the throne of the throne of David. It wasn't. It wasn't taken away. It wasn't moved. Where was it, it moved? Move? Where was it moved from? By, it was taken. Into, it was taken into Solomon Babylon. Be, Solomon didn't be a son named Menlik. That is again. That is what the Ethiopian. Who was it? That is what the Ethiopian chronicle says. We're not disputing that the Ethiopian chronicles, but you don't find that in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. There's no Amalek in the Bible. That's found in the Ethiopian chronicles. They take that the Queen of Sheba was from uh, was from um, Ethiopia. She went over to see Solomon, and he sired a child by her. They came back into into Ethiopia. Uh, but again, the Jews are not Ethiopians. The Jews were carried into captivity in 7022, went to Babylon, and were taken to Assyria. Different thing altogether. But the whole of the whole of Africa was Ethiopia. The whole of Africa was what? Ethiopia before that was the name of that land. Ethiopia. Well, this land of Kush. It's called. It's called. It's called the land of Kush. Right. Uh, that is where. Again, do you know there were two Kushes, or you didn't know that? I know about the one from Ethiopia. Yeah, there were two. Because Mm. if you check the story in the book of Genesis, uh, where you've got the sons of of, um, of, um, Noah, three sons from which the the world was populated after the flood, uh, you'll find a Cush is mentioned there, and that is in the same area of Babylon. That's where there's a Cush in Babylon. And then the Cushites moved from Babylon and went down into Africa. That's that's what the, that's what you find there in the book of the Bible. So there was a movement of people going to different parts of the world because out of out of um, Noah's three sons is where the world got populated. That's where you get the three races from: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We are told that Japheth went north to the European countries. Shem remained in uh, the Middle East and also went went to the east. And Cush moved towards the south, where he went down into Africa. 
but that's where that's where it is so when you mentioned in genesis what what what, what, what that what word uh, what, what, what that's the that point that's what that's, what, that's what we're trying to say that the, the kush there in genesis is the kush in in babylon that's where the that's where the garden of eden was if you check if you know anything with the bible any direction of the bible is always in respect to the land of israel and when it says in the east is east of israel the east of israel is exactly where uh, um iraq is today this is exactly where babylon was and that's the area where you've got the Tigris-Euphrates and you've got the, uh, the Tigris-Euphrates River. Those are mentioned as flowing through. And then another one is mentioned as flowing through Kush. That's not the Kush in Ethiopia. There's no, uh, that's where people get so confused. They figure the word Kush in the book of Genesis is referring to Ethiopia. There's no Ethiopia in, in, uh, in the book of Genesis. It didn't even exist as yet. Ethiopia is not in the book of Genesis. I Ethiopia said the, the word Genesis. Ethiopia in Genesis chapter 1 and yeah. 2 did not exist at the time of the e e in Eden, Eden was in the Mesopotamian area, around where you find Iraq is, because that's where the Tigris and Euphrates River is. I thought uh, Ethiopia was the motherland of Egypt. Ethiopia was what? Ethiopia is not the motherland of Egypt. Sir, what I'm saying to you is this, right? I'm saying to you that the word e the word that you find in the Bible that is translated Ethiopia, if you go into a, a Hebrew t dictionary, you see the word is Kush. That's what I'm trying to say to you. The word Ethiopia does not appear in the Bible itself. It's the word is Kush. And that is translated Ethiopia, but it is Kush. And there was a Kush in the Mesopotamian area. And uh, the Kushites moved from the Mesopotamian area after the flood, and they went down into the Arab. That's where you get the word Kush in both places. That's all I'm saying to you. Okay. The confusion today is, is simple, very, very simple. And let me, I, I think I understand a little bit where you're coming from. Let me tell you what has happened with people today, right? We're all trying to look at the Bible through a color. And that's the biggest mistake we're making. So because the Europeans uh, came up with a white Jesus and tried to interpret the Bible a certain way, now we're trying to interpret another way by looking through our skin, and we're trying to put but things nobody in. Have ever, nobody have ever seen this man named Jesus. Nobody right, I him. agree with that. But we know he was a Jew. That's all we know he was a Jew, okay? And we know he was an ordinary Jew because he lived in the time they of Palestine. But no, they have no arm. Um, do, do they, 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 have, they have no portrait of this man? No, they don't have any. No, they don't have. And that was, that, I think that was one of the mistakes that the Europeans made. Yeah. to be very honest with you and that has hurt Christianity because it is always perceived as a white man's religion and I think that is part of the, our history is causing us now to move away from the Bible and that come up with our own interpretation real, 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 real confusion. Yeah, that's what has happened but again I would suggest to people who have those issues go into the Bible study the Bible and ask God the Holy Spirit to help you to understand the Bible and don't go into the Bible with either a white man's view or Indian's view or black man's view go to the Bible as a human being whom this God has revealed himself uh, to us and find out what this God is uh, you know, we start getting into the color thing and all this kind of thing. We, we end up doing the same thing the Europeans did, and we end up with all massive confusion. People, Mr. Murphy, yes, sir. The people must realize you now we were taken down here as slaves. I know that. I understand that. Yeah. Let me say to you something on, yeah, over the radio, right? You have changed our language, Brother Murphy. I know, I know that. I know that. You have done a lot of things to this black nation. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that. Uh, they did to us. They set up the Western world religion, the Western world Christian. Well, I, I, I kind of differ with you there in the sense that, um, let me just say yeah, this, right? All people are lost. They have lost their way to, to Christianity, to, to imperialism, to, co to colonialism and all these things. I don't, I, I think it's the abuse of, of religion 
that has caused the problem. But we need to go back to biblical Christianity. We don't need to go back to uh, what the Anglican Church say or the Catholic Church. We need to go back to what is biblical Christianity. Once again, we are in we are in Egypt once again. How are we in Egypt? It's just, it's just like it's, it's playing over. It's just going on in a circle. Uh. We are in Egypt once more. Well, I you might be in Egypt, but I, I don't, don't see nothing changing, you know, Mr. Bodemer. It's the same. We, we, we are we are still in this in this. Uh, I, I will say we, we are we are, we are we are suffering by this by this by this. We have been taken out of our motherland. Yeah. So we want and, and bought and bought in this place by by this. By, by, by this white race uh -huh. to do their work. So what what are you going to do then? You want to go back to Africa? But what I'm saying... No, I want to ask you a question. But that is, that is that must be a way taken from But would that solve your problem? Then? Would that solve your problem? By going back to Africa? No, I'm just asking a question. Well, repartition is a must in the word of Murphy. Repartition is a must. Uh -huh. well, Did I ever speak of it? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, I'm not going to... If you want to go back, I mean, you have a right to it's go back. It's not what I want to do, you know. It's what the Father is going to do. It's not me, you know. Uh -huh. The Bible is prophet, the Bible prophet, prophesy about it. What it prophesies? That we ha you have to take all these people out of the Babylon. Babylon, these people must leave Babylon. Yeah, but the Babylon of the Bible in the book of Revelation is not the Babylon that you are talking but about. that is what we are in, Brother Murphy. Uh -huh. That's where we are. Talking about we're the not Jews. praising our God that we used to praise in our motherland, Brother Murphy. We're not praising our God, you know. We are praising a different God down here. So what because God? Of, because of slavery. What God are you were you praising in, in, in the motherland? We were praising. We were praising. Our, we were praising the original black, our original black God, the God in flesh, that in spirit. So here's because here's, he revealed himself in flesh. The God, the, the God revealed himself in the flesh. And uh, it says he's a black God. But what can he be? I don't think you have any color, but he, he revealed himself unto the black nation. Brother, black people uh, are the one who is suffering now. We are the one who are suffering, you know, Brother Murphy. Yeah, we I, are no, the one who went to slavery. Yeah, but look, but, but I, I, all I'm going to say to you is this, right? Every single mm -hmm. uh, nation at some point in time went through slavery. You know that? Not like the black man, Brother Murphy. I didn't say like the black man, but I'm saying, look, take the Roman Empire, for example. Mm -hmm. In the Roman Empire... 70% of everybody in the Roman Empire, whether you be pink, blue, black, or green, were slaves. Every one of them. Europeans, you go to the Europeans, they were slaves at one time as well. They enslaved each other. So it's not a matter that one nation has been through. What has happened in this final phase is that now that Christianity has pervaded the Western world and people understand the atrocity that was committed uh, in slavery, this has now emboldened people to begin to deal with these kind of issues. But it's the Christian principles that have led the, the black man and led other people to feel that injustice has been done. Without the Christian principles, it'd be just one nation conquering another because that's how humanity has always been. The Jews, for example, were slaves in Egypt. They were also slaves by the Ethiop uh, by the, uh, the Assyrians. They were made slaves by the Babylonians. So they've been to, you know, I am not disputing the fact that slavery has cre created a lot of problems. I know that. But my answer to the question, my answer to this kind of dilemma is, the problem is not in the Bible. The problem is the, f the misuse of the Bible. That's my answer. You don't throw the Bible because yeah, it, it was misuse. Right. That's what I was saying. But I, I'm very sympathetic and I understand a lot of what has happened. Uh, and I don't know... Uh, if there's a solution to this problem, the only solution I can see is not going to be in, in, in our lifetime or your lifetime or my lifetime. The only solution is going to be when Christ returns and set up his kingdom and justice rule on planet earth as water covers the earth. No politician, 
No government is going to solve the problems that we have today. We're not looking for man to solve the problem. We're looking for Christ to come back and deal with the issues that need to be dealt with because man can't deal with them. He's fallen, he's sinful, he's evil, he's wicked. That's how man is and man will not change until he's regenerated. That's the biblical truth about mankind. So whether you be pink, blue, or black, you need to be saved, you need to be converted, you need life to be transformed, you need to become a new creature. And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within a person, that person is changed, that person is transformed, and that person begins to treat people as God wants people to be treated. You must love your fellow man like you love yourself. The two great commandments, love God and love your fellow, that's how it has to, should have happened in the first case. Unfortunately, because of man's sinful nature and man's selfishness, Man has mistreated and abused uh, even the greatest so, gift so that God has given to them. So because of, okay, I'm not dealing with any colors. So that is what they did then, the white man. Pardon me? He, he abused us then. Yeah, the, the, who, who, can dis- who can debate that? Mm-hmm. Nobody can debate that. Oh, that that's okay, a fact good. of history. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. I've got a quick question, okay, Pastor. Uh-huh. Uh, th- thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the call. Uh-huh. I, appreciate, and I appreciate you being civil in that discussion. Uh-huh. Uh, we really do appreciate that. Pastor Ken... We claim prophecies in Scripture that were written about the the Jews. When you say can we claim, I'm not too sure well, what you mean by that. Well, like, like claiming a prophecy saying that the, the verses that are written about us being in Babylon or being in Egypt, but if we're not the Jews... Uh, no, I understand. What has happened, his, uh, his language there is the Rastafarian language where they perceive modern civilization, the Western world, as their Babylon. So they interpret the book of Revelation as referring to this is our Babylon. That's what they're saying. But again, that's a false interpretation, which I hope when we get in the book of Revelations, uh, we will make that very, very clear. Now, Babylon is always symbolic in the Bible of a religious apostate system. Babylon started in the Tower of Babel. That's what the word Babel means. It means Babylon. All false religions started in Babel. And that is why uh, it became symbolic throughout the Bible for a religious apostate system that is away from God, misleading man. And the the system of Babylon is the corrupt uh, religious system of the world. That's what he, I think he means. Uh, that's why he said that we live in all Babylon. So I understand what he's talking about. Uh, but um, we'll get to that in the book of Revelation. Thank you again to the individual who called in from Pickett's Antigua. We appreciate it. If you have a question, send it in quickly. We only have 11 minutes left in the program tonight. And Pastor, you were uh, discussing, I believe, the second reason why you hold to the pre-mill view. Yeah. yeah, I was given the first reason, of course, is the Abrahamic, Davidic, and the the, uh, the promises made uh, by Christ to his disciples. Now, either Christ cannot fulfill that promise, and he made a promise and he didn't know he could do it, which means that he's not God which means that he's just a human being that could make fallible mistakes, so therefore it undermines the whole doctrine of Christianity. Or he made that promise knowing that nothing could stop that promise being fulfilled, and he will fulfill that promise. Uh, and and if the second thing I mentioned is the chronology of the book of Revelations. Chapter 18 and 19, John talks about in chapter 9 that Christ returns. He destroys the kingdom of the beasts, the Antichrist. And then when he does that, he binds the Antichrist and the false prophet. He throws them, and then he binds Satan for thousands years. He resurrects the saints that died in the tribulation period and then he starts his millennial kingdom. That chronology 
clearly supports the premillennial system, which teaches that Christ will return and then set up his kingdom. And that's what John teaches in chapter 19 and chapter 20. That's the point I'm making here. That that's one of the, when you take the book of Revelations, and, uh, except, by the way, the interesting that um, the amillennialist, when it talks about in the book of uh, chapter, uh, chapter 20, about the resurrection of those that come to the tribulation period, uh, maybe you can look there for just a moment. Yeah, Revelation 20, what verse? Uh, I think it's about verse 4, I believe. Uh, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Mm-hmm. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness right. of Jesus yeah. and the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And read verse 5, And the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years was over. So here's a section that is raised. And who are there that are raised? The ones that were beheaded for Christ. Remember, we come to martyrs during the tribulation period. They are raised and resurrected and go into the millennial kingdom. Right now, here's how the amillennialists would interpret that: that that is referring to a spiritual resurrection. It's not a real physical resurrection of these people. And the, the, here's the problem with that: every time this word is used, uh, that is used here, the Greek word, it's used 41 times, uh, 42 times in the Bible. And it mean it would mean then that 41 times it's referring to a physical resurrection. But in this case. Is referring to spiritual resurrection. So they would allegorize this and spiritualize it. This is not a real, authentic re- resurrection. This is a figurative language of uh, people being raised spiritually when they get saved as believers. You get what I'm saying? So it goes against some rules of hermeneutics. Correct. It goes against that, that particular principle. The third reason I would support the pre-mill view uh, has to do with the fact that this was the opposition of the church for the first 300 years. Uh, and I mentioned the first that Papias and Polycarp, who were disciples of John, who wrote the book of Revelations, they believe in the premillennial view that Christ will return and then set up his kingdom. As a matter of fact, I want to quote you uh, Justin Martin, who lived from 100 to 165. This is what he wrote. I thought it was interesting. He said, But I and every other completely orthodox Christian feel certain that there will be a resurrection of the flesh followed by 1,000 years and to be built, embellished, and enlarged city of Jerusalem as was announced by the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. You can't get it more plainer that they believe there's going to be a literal, physical rule of Christ from Jerusalem and there will be 1,000 years of rule. So those are three fundamental reasons why I believe that this view, there are others, but I think that that in itself uh, should be sufficient to justify the belief in the premillennial view. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 megahertz FM. You can also listen to us online anywhere in the world at www.radiolighthouse.org. Have you ever wondered what it looks like behind the scenes on a call-in radio program? Well, we have just the opportunity you've been waiting for. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can see what goes on in the studio. Pastor, we have a caller calling from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for your call, and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good, good evening, good panel. Good evening, sir. Good program. Thank you. Uh, Pastor Mafio, let me ask you a question. Uh, there is some religion that's preaching that in order to get to heaven, you have to be a spiritual Jew, like the Adventists. I would like you to explain that to me, please. 
Well, I, you know, Paul talks about in the book of Romans that not all Jews are Jews. And he says, only those that have the faith of Abraham. So I, I don't know if they mean that, if they mean that uh, because we have the same faith of Abraham, because Abraham is called to be the father of the faithful. So I would probably interpret that to mean that a person had to have faith in God, like Abraham had faith in God, and they would probably call that person a spiritual Jew. But uh, there's no need for us to call uh, a person that a spiritual Jew, to be honest with you, because if you read the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about God breaking down the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile, and he's made of two, one body in Christ. So uh, a person who puts their faith and trust in Christ is a believer, whether he be Jew or Gentile. So I am not too sure why they would use that kind of an expression, because it creates confusion in the minds of people. And that's why today, uh, I think, well not I think, the Seventh-day Adventist, for example, doesn't have a place for the literal nation of Israel as part of God's prophetic program. They believe like the amillennialists and the postmillennialists that all the promises made to Israel in the New Old Testament were forfeited by Israel's unbelief and now the church has replaced Israel in God's program and all the promises God made to Israel are now part of the, the church. Uh, Paul uh, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 makes that very clear that God has not forsaken the Jew. He has set the Jew aside, grafted the Gentiles into his program, but the time is coming when God will uh, rapture the church, regraft Israel to his program, and then the Bible said all Israel is going to be saved. So I'm not too sure why they would use that expression, but I would think that to mean that the person is saying that we are spiritual Jews in the sense that we put our faith and trust in Christ like Abraham did. If that's what they mean, uh, not a problem, but uh, so that's how you would interpret that. Because I know and also the part in the Bible tells you that we are neither Jew nor Gentile, we are all in one Christ. C- correct, yeah. That's why I said mm-hmm. the language, is, is, language is, is confusing to people like that, because we're one in Christ, and there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. We're just saints and believers in Jesus Christ. So we are uh, people of faith, and people who are justified by faith and faith alone. So we know, you know, we know believers in Christ, as opposed to be either Jew. But, you know, the Jew has not lost his identity. Uh, he maintains his identity for all these 2,000 years he was in exile. He was returned to Palestine in 1948. Uh, again, because God has those people for a special purpose, for a special reason. But we today who are Gentiles and we today, people who are Jews who come to faith in Christ, we belong to the church. Uh, we don't belong to Abraham, we belong to the church. But in the sense that we are part of the same kind of faith that Abraham had, that we believed in God like Abraham did by faith, uh, it they could be used that way, but I think in the modern times, I think it creates confusion. I would, I would avoid it as much as possible. Okay, then. Okay, sir. Thank you so much for calling. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Have a blessed night. Pastor, we have three minutes left in the program. I don't know if you want to start a new topic of Bible prophecy or if you want to just kind of summarize what you've covered thus far tonight. Well, see if we can cover maybe the, la- the next, oh, next issue you want to deal with. Um, okay, so... Something that I know I've been asked many times, the word rapture is not in the Bible. You can go to your Bible concordance, you can search it, and it's not there. So is that a doctrine that has been made up by man? Well, if we use that argument, I think we create some problems for ourselves. For example, the word Trinity is not in the Bible as well, so it doesn't mean there's no Trinity. Uh, the word Bible itself is not in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. Uh, the word 
uh, communion, by the way, is not in the Bible either. Uh, if you know that, mm-hmm. right? And then the the word confirmation that a lot of these churches use, or confirming people in the faith, uh, and they go through a process of training, is not in the Bible either. Uh, so if we go to the argument because it's not in the Bible, therefore it is man-made, we're making a mistake because in truth and fact, there is a trinity. It's just a term that we use, the triune God. There is a Bible uh, uh, the, it's called in, in the Bible the law of the prophets and the, the, the writings. And then, of course, the word communion refers to the Lord's Supper. We know that. And confirmation, we know that that is training before baptism, etc., etc. The truth of the matter is that the word rapture is a Latin word. And it came from the Latin Vulgate, uh, translated by Jerome. And uh, the, the, when they were translated the King James Version, and they took that word from the Vulgate, uh, and the word, uh, so it's a Latin word uh, that is translated in the Latin rapturo. When it comes over to the English, it is rapture. But the reason why that word was used, because the Greek word that is used in First um, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, if you look at that for just quickly before the program ends, First First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, can you read that for me, please? Yeah, First Thessalonians four seventeen yeah. says, "And say to Archippus, no, take no, First Thessalonians, chapter four, verse seventeen. Yeah, let me see if um, uh, First Thessalonians, chapter four. Uh, Second Thessalonians four seventeen yeah, says, yeah, "Then we which right. are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord." See the word "caught up" there. Yeah. In the Greek language, uh, that word is harpazo, and it means to snatch away, to seize, to take away. So when they were translating that word harpazo into the English language, they used the word rapture because the word rapture means to take. And so that's why the word is used there. You could actually change that word in the Second Thessalonians chapter 4 and put that we should be taken away or catching away or carried away. Same thing as rapture. So the word rapture, while it is not in the Bible, it, 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 it conveys the concept in the English language, what we mean, to be taken away. And, and, and because the word there, harpazo, means to snatch away, to cease, to take away. So we should be taken away, we should be snatched away, we should be seized and taken away. And that's what we believe the rapture is, that when Christ comes, He takes the church away with Him. So while it's not in the English, uh, in the in the uh, Greek language, uh, it is a good translation for the English English uh, Bible. And we will discuss Bible prophecy and specifically the Rapture in much more detail, Lord willing, next Tuesday. So make sure that you set an alarm, make a mental note, set aside the time next Tuesday evening here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse to join us for another exciting episode of That's Truth. Until then, keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Enjoy the Christmas music. Enjoy the Christmas programming. God bless you, and have a wonderful night. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.59. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth 
Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.